So we're all back at school now. Welcome back. And in the popular consciousness, that phenomenon is usually met with groans and eye rolling because, ugh, school sucks. Well, I think that's stupid, and I guarantee my guest on this episode thinks it's stupid, but of course she would say it way nicer than that. And so what we're going to do today is learn some cool stuff, because learning is cool, school is not stupid, and I guarantee you know nothing about how many bacterial cells you have in your body, the value of human teeth that are thousands of years old, whether grain and agriculture is to blame for modern chronic disease and other stuff, but my guest does, and her name is Dr. Christina Warriner, and she is a professor of anthropology at the Laboratories of Molecular Anthropology and Microbiome Research at the University of Oklahoma Welcome to The Crush. Hi again, folks. A reminder to subscribe to the show on iTunes and rate it there if you haven't already. Thanks to those who have done so. I'm happy to get this episode out for many reasons, not the least of which that uh, myself and thousands of my colleagues are now in the thick of our fall admissions, recruitment, and travel season. We're getting lost trying to find schools and their correct entrances. Uh, We're keeping our receipts. We're giving the same talk in some cases scores or hundreds of times in a given week and trying to make it sound different each time, replacing the, uh, the Dr. Scholl's gel inserts in our college fair shoes. And this will be the case for us for the next six weeks or so. So I found this sliver of time here to get this out to you guys, which uh, makes me feel super accomplished. So here with this episode, I submit to you my audition tape to be host of NPR's Science Friday, kinda. And today we learned stuff. We learned stuff about teeth, about really old teeth, about microbiomes and bacterial cells and about research in general and why undergrads should consider doing it. And uh, my guest has a few great tips on how to get involved and what to expect. And she also has some really interesting things to say about women in science and academia, definitely qualifying as real talk on the matter of being a woman and trying to have a career in academia, uh, which hits home for me as the spouse of somebody trying to do just that. Towards the last 10 minutes or so of our conversation, uh, we focus on the topic of her highly popular TED Talk, Debunking the Paleo Diet, which has, as of this recording, over 1.3 million views on YouTube. A word here on the recording. There are periods of the conversation that are a little spotty sort of towards the beginning because, uh, well, I recorded this at home and it turns out my wife was streaming an episode of Star Trek the next generation on Netflix uh, in the next room as I talked with Dr. Warner on Skype. So that was chewing up uh, a little bit of the bandwidth because Time Warner sucks. I don't know. I wish we had better internet, but that's that's what we got to go with. Anyways, my wife is a huge Star Trek fan. It's her happy place. It's her therapy. So I'm not going to blame her too much for that. Anyways, the the connection improves. Uh, After the episode ends and Picard is once again foiled by Q or the Borg or something. I spoke with Dr. Christina Warner from her office in Norman, Oklahoma. Hi, Devin, how are you? Good, good morning. Good morning. How are you? I'm doing well. Good. And yourself? I'm, I'm okay, thank you. I want to start and just ask because I am, I was initially uh, introduced to you via the Museum of Natural History uh, newsletter mm-hmm. that I get because uh, because we're members and you were there to give a talk. Yes. Yeah. And what were you there to give a talk about? So uh, I think the title was How Paleo is Your Diet. But mm-hmm. what I was really talking about was um, what we know about changes in human diet through time and also changes in the human microbiome through time and how our modern lifestyles might be influencing our, our health today. So looking both through the sort of the lens of the microbiome and our diets. So tell me more about your sort of primary discipline of study and research. Right, so I am an anthropologist and I split my time kind of in two areas, both in archeology span and biological anthropology. So I'm really interested in understanding human biology human diversity, but I also 
in, in doing that, um, incorporate a temporal dimension, so through time. And so I have done work in both areas. I've excavated sites. I've um, So I, I definitely have a strong archaeological component to this. And so I have a lot of questions that I'm interested in. One is, you know, how have human diets changed through time? How have we changed the world that we live in um, to create the diets that we eat today? Um, so if you go to a grocery store today, almost every single thing in that grocery store with the exception of maybe a few fish is going to be farmed or the products of agriculture and our ancestors ate very very differently in the past and so one question is how has this radical change affected us and in addition to that um, more recently it's become really apparent that the microbiome which are the native bacteria that live in and on the human body um, are part of our core biology and really influence our health and behavior and um, overall quality of life and so one thing I've been wanting to do as well is to study how they have changed over time. So not just human evolution, but microbial evolution. That has been historically really hard to get at. Like, where do you go in the archaeological record to get ancient bacteria? And at first that seemed rather daunting, but it turns out there are two substrates where we can get direct information about our ancient microbes. One is dental calculus, which is just a fancy term for the tartar on your teeth, yeah. which fossilizes while you're alive and preserves through time. Wait a second. And sometimes... It mm -hmm. fossilizes while you're alive. Yeah, it's the only part of your body that actually fossilizes while you're still alive. So your dental plaque essentially undergoes a fossilization process in your mouth mm -hmm. to form tartar, which is what you go to, to the dentist to clean off. So your toothbrush can remove dental plaque from your teeth because dental plaque is actually just a kind of a mat of living bacteria. But over time, your saliva precipitates mineral into it, which kills the bacteria. So it's kind of a defense mechanism of your body. But in doing so, it causes it to fossilize. And then it preserves with the rest of your skeleton for thousands of years after you die. Wow. And lucky for us, we can go into the archaeological record. When we find a skeleton, we can also find this dental calculus and we can reconstruct the microbes that used to live in your oral cavity. Wow. And so you have then used the bad dental habits of ancient people to uh, advance our understanding about ourselves. Is that sort of basically what's going on? Exactly. So I'm very grateful for the lack of toothbrush. toothbrush <laughs> Did so they? I mean, what, you know, do you have a sense of when the concept of dental care even sort of became a thing? You know, that's a question I've been starting to wonder and think about a lot, a lot harder. So the origins of so our modern dental care that we have today, like professional dentistry and, and oral hygiene that we have today, like dental hygienists and toothpaste and, and flossing, that all sort of begins in the 18th century in Europe. But that being said, Europeans did not invent dental hygiene. There are lots of cultures in the past that practice some form of dental hygiene, even going back very far. There are even Neanderthals who have evidence of using toothpicks to clean their teeth. Some of them clean their teeth so frequently they actually wore grooves in between their teeth from toothpicking to try to get things out of their teeth. So um, across time and space and different points, different groups practiced sometimes very aggressive oral hygiene but we, we just don't know very much about it, to be honest. I know that in um, India, for example, um, they've been using a, a special type of uh, tree um, called neem. It's called neem. And if you kind of peel back the bark, it naturally forms this sort of almost like brush on twigs. And that's been used to clean teeth for as long as there's been written records and probably further back into prehistory. We don't know how far back that goes. Uh, a similar uh, twig was used in Saudi Arabia to clean teeth. Um, I think in China they had similar things at different points in time, but we don't really know much because something like that, like a twig doesn't preserve in the archeological record, we yeah. don't really know how old it was. And there's many populations in the past that probably were practicing dental hygiene, um, but we don't know what they were doing. But in general, I can say that there are some broad time periods where there was very little dental hygiene practice. So um, the medieval period in Europe was a, was, a, was a low point in dental hygiene. I can assure you of that. I think it was, a, yeah, it was sort of a not very low point in a, in, a, in a lot of contexts, I think, uh, <laughs> from what I understand. Uh, yeah, mixed blessings there during the medieval period, I think. Uh, yeah, I mean, I've seen some pretty spectacular oral pathologies, which must have been very painful for the people who had them but for as a scientist today studying it it's actually a bit of a gold mine for us so yeah and then you've got you know the uh i was always fascinated by you know the um uh 
sort of pre-Columbian Mesoamerican cultures that would inlay, you know, uh, emeralds and jade and stuff into their teeth. Like that was wild to me. I couldn't believe it. Yeah. The most common are pyrite, um, which um, we tend to think of pyrite like fool's gold as this sort of golden thing. But actually they would polish it into a mirror. So it'd actually be like inlaying your teeth with mirrors. And then they would also inlay with jade and sometimes with some other um, some other stones. Uh, depending on where you are, sometimes turquoise and sometimes shell, so like red shell. So they were very interested in creating some very colorful sort of uh, dental racks, if you will. Um, but uh, but the pyrite mirrors are particularly interesting, kind of giving this very reflective surface, yeah. very shiny. Well, I think basically what we need to do is we need to start telling people like, you know, Lil Wayne to step up his game <laughs> a little bit because, you know, simply putting, you know, caps over your teeth is not hardcore enough. No, and actually, in addition, so the um, ancient Mesoamericans, which is many cultures, so not just the Maya, but the central Mexican populations, yeah. uh, there's lots of different groups, and, and dental modification was shared across many of them. And some of them did really, they also would file their teeth into different shapes, sometimes into points, sometimes into, um, actually, there's a shape uh, that that they would uh, carve their incisors into that resembles the shape of their temples. There's this architectural style called Tulu Tablero, which means sort of like a sort of like a table-like structure, and they would carve their teeth into the same shape and then inlay them with with jade or pyrite. Um, they were very adventurous when it came to dental modification. Yeah, and that's uh, without the gas mask, right? Uh, yeah. They didn't have didn't have uh, Novocaine, you know, no no, no laughing gas. No, I, well, we don't know what they had. I mean, to the best of our knowledge, they didn't have any. Uh, well, they had some hallucinogens. Um, actually, the Maya are really interesting. They have a series of of pots. Uh, chocolate pots. So chocolate pots of the ancient Maya were sort of like the party favors of the big uh, events that different kings would have. They'd have these big kind of bacchanalian parties, and then they would give away these chocolate pots as party favors. And on the surface of the pot, sometimes they would depict the parties themselves. And there's a subset of these pots that depict people getting absolutely drunk (laughs) and are being there. Some of the pots depict people vomiting all over the place, being carried by their servants. So Good times. They did have the capability of becoming fully incapacitated if they wanted to. Sounds like college. Mm-hmm. <coughs> sort of. Yeah. Uh, but with, you know, uh, elaborate uh, tooth filings. Um, mm-hmm. So uh, there are a couple of things that I, I learned from, you know, looking a little bit at some of the things that, that, that you've done. Some r- very interesting facts. There's one in particular that I learned about microbial cells. So I think, you know, we tend to think of ourselves as, as human beings, as being made up of human cells. And that's true. We have a, roughly 30 trillion human cells in our body. It's actually really hard to count. If you think about it, how do you count the number of cells in your body? That's yep. really hard. But on, based on our estimates, um, uh, we think there's about 30 trillion human cells in the human body. And in terms of bacterial cells, we can also count them to the best of our ability. They, they vary in where they are and how many there are. Um, we think there's at least 40 trillion. Um, what's interesting is, so that means we're more than 50% microbial. What's also quite interesting is actually most of those human cells are red blood cells, which don't contain any DNA at all because they're just oxygen transport vehicles. So if you only count the number of cells that we have that actually have like cell nuclei that actually have DNA in them, um, then it's about a 10 to 1 ratio of bacterial cells to human cells. So we, by cell count, are actually um, mostly microbial. Now, of course, bacterial cells are also much smaller than human cells, which is why we still appear to be human and not just like my, microbial blobs. Mm-hmm. So the, the bacterial cells are on average about a thousand times smaller than a human cell. And most of them are located in the gut and um, in particular in the distal colon. Uh, And then in feces, they're concentrated to an extremely amazing degree. So it's almost pure bacterial cells with some other things mixed in. Um, And that's why actually, um, every time you go to the bathroom, you actually lose about 20% of your total cell count, um, which then you regenerate with your next meal because each meal actually feeds your bacteria as well and they grow. I am so glad that we got to mention that. Uh, (laughs) put that. Put that number of microbial cells in context. Yeah, so so when we talk about trillions of cells, uh, that's, I think that's really hard for us to conceptualize because it's an enormous number. Um, so if we put it into some other units that make it a little bit easier to, to think about, um, if you were to take 
all the bacterial cells just in your own body, only your own body, and you were to line them up in a single file line. Each one is a little bit over one micron long, which is about one millionth of a meter. So really, really, really tiny. Is that like so a human, line, human hair? If you took a human, the width of a human hair mm -hmm. and you split it into a thousand pieces, so if you split it a thousand, so a thousand times thinner than the width of a human hair, okay. approximately. That's, a, that's, about a, that's a micron. Yeah. So if you were to line them all up, just yep. the ones in your own body, it would actually wrap around the entire earth. Wow. So that's how many bacteria there are. Now, they're all jumbled about, mm -hmm. and they're, they're not all in a single file line, which is why we can compact, make them much more compact. Um, but also to put that in perspective, you know, if you think about one, another unit we might think about is the number of stars in the Milky Way galaxy. If you've ever seen a picture of the Milky Way galaxy, there's so many stars. Um, and you actually, we actually have in our body more bacteria than there are stars in about a hundred Milky Way galaxies. There's only about 300 billion stars in the Milky Way galaxy. So we have, you know, we have this enormous number of bacteria in our bodies. And well, that's impressive that how numerous they are, where they actually become really important is not only are they really numerous in terms of cell count, but they have an immense diversity of genes. Mm. So they have 150 times more different types of genes than we do. And so by using not only the genes in our own genome, but then taking advantage of the genes that they have, which we call our accessory genome, that actually allows us to do many things, many metabolic functions that we actually don't have the ability to do. So probably, you know, it's hard to think about in our own body, but a good example would be something like cattle. So a cow eats grass and grass is primarily made up of cellulose, which is a type of carbohydrate, but it's a type of carbohydrate that animals can't actually break down. So the cow can't actually digest the grass that it's eating. Instead, it uses bacteria, which make an enzyme called cellulase, which breaks down the cellulose into something called uh, fatty acids, and the cow actually absorbs the fatty acids. So if you were to give a cow a lot of antibiotics such that you killed all their bacteria, they would actually starve to death because they can't actually digest grass on their own. So they are fully dependent on their microbes to eat their food. Wow. So the, um, and I want to talk a little bit more about, about diet. I want to confirm also this thing that I heard that basically all of our cells in our body regenerate, right? That they kind of, that they, that they, that they, we, we shed old ones and make new ones all the time, except for teeth. Yes. Yeah, so teeth are really interesting. So throughout your lifetime, we tend to think of our bones as being pretty static, like once they're fully grown, but they're not. It takes about 15 years, but about every 15 years, you actually fully replace your skeleton. You don't do it all at once. It was not like, we're not like snakes where we shed a skin, right? We don't like step out of our skeleton and get a new one. It's very slow and it takes place one cell at a time, but we actually completely turn over our skeleton about every, well, the atoms in our skeleton about once every 15 years. Yeah. Um, we do not change our teeth. Once your teeth are formed, that's your tooth. It never, you can't grow a new tooth. It can't heal itself. Um, you make it once and that's it. Now, that being said, there is one part of your tooth that does continue to grow, which is kind of interesting. So you have your tooth and on the, and on the, the tooth root, the part that actually sits inside your jaw, uh, that's covered with something called cementum. And you can probably guess from the name, it helps cement your tooth into your jaw. So help your teeth from, prevent your teeth from falling out. You have a ligament called the periodontal ligament, which actually attaches your teeth to your jaw so that when you chew, your teeth don't fly out. So we can all be grateful that we have a periodontal ligament. Indeed. In archaeological samples, the ligament um, decomposes. And that's why if you have an archaeological jaw, you can actually easily pull the teeth out because the ligament's gone. But anyways, the ligament attaches the jaw to the tooth. And the part of the tooth that it attaches to is called cementum. Um, this cementum does continue to grow as you get older. And so older people have thicker layers of cementum and younger people have thinner layers of cementum. Um, but that's the only part of your tooth that grows and the rest of it doesn't change. Why not? Um, what, was it, what is it about teeth that, 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 make, that they don't change? Uh, they, there's just no mechanism for it. Now that's not true across all animals. So everybody who has a pet hamster knows that those teeth keep growing. That's right. So rodents have the ability to continuously produce their incisors. They make them over, they just keep making them. So they have the ability to make perpetually growing incisor teeth. Um, 
Uh, horses also have these kind of specialized molars because their diet's so abrasive, they're constantly wearing down their teeth, that their teeth will actually also continue to grow up until a limited point in time. But, um, but most animals actually, they make their teeth and that's it. That's it. Sharks are a little bit different. Sharks make teeth constantly. They just teeth are just coming out all the time. <laughs> uh, they lose and they just make new ones. But that's also a bit unusual. Um, most animals can't do that, and humans are definitely can't do that. We have a type of teeth that's called bunodont teeth. Um, it, our teeth are actually really similar to the teeth in pigs. In, interestingly enough, um, and we just got we have two sets of teeth. We have our deciduous teeth, which is our baby teeth essentially, and then those get replaced by our permanent teeth. And that's all we get. And that's it. And once they're gone, if you crack it, if you lose it, it's just gone. We can't replace it. We can't repair it. You can repair your bone. If you break your bone, your body will heal that bone. You have um, cells there. You have nerves there, blood vessels. It, they will bring new cells in that will repair that break. We don't have anything like that in teeth. It's just the structure of the, of the teeth is different. And there's no mechanism for repair or replacement. Wow. So take care of your teeth. Take care of your teeth. Once they're gone, they're gone. So let me move on and ask you to talk a little bit about uh, what it is that you learn from studying all of this stuff and what are you trying to um, to help us, us, us who here who are alive uh, understand from those who are no longer alive that you have had the capability to study? Yeah, so we have a couple of kind of overarching questions that we're trying to answer. And then we have some kind of fun, more focused questions that are, are just really interesting um, insights into the past. So one of the things we're trying to understand is the evolution of the oral microbiome. So the bacteria that live in and on the surfaces of the oral cavity, we're trying to understand how they've changed through time. Um, and this is important for a lot of reasons. Um, it has, uh, it, it impacts our oral health. One thing that's very interesting about humans is that 90% of humans will develop periodontal disease during their lifetime. It's the only, the oral microbiome is the only microbiome in the human body that will cause disease in most people. And that suggests there's something seriously wrong with our microbiome because the microbiome in general is symbiotic and mutualistic. It usually benefits us, but in the oral cavity, like I said, 90% of people will develop periodontal disease. Um, and that's defined as either gingivitis or periodontitis. Periodontitis is a much more advanced form of periodontal disease. About 40% of people will develop that. And that's more serious. Periodontitis means that you actually lose the bone, parts of the bone in your jaw. If you lose enough bone, your teeth fall out. And this is a, a one, of, in addition to cavities, this is a major cause of uh, tooth loss, especially in older individuals. And you might think, well, so you lose a few teeth, what does that matter? But it turns out that the inflammation that accompanies this process um, will aggravate other chronic diseases. So it will aggravate type two diabetes, it will aggravate obesity, it will aggravate cardiovascular disease and actually make these conditions worse. So keeping, um, you know, having good dental care, dental hygiene and, and healthy teeth actually um, helps protect you from other chronic disorders in the rest of your body. It's really important. Um, a lot of people out there who get dental work have to take antibiotics before they get dental work. And that's because oral bacteria, if they get into the bloodstream, can cause um, pretty serious infections, particularly in people who have other chronic conditions. So this is something we're, we're interested in. But one question we have is, you know, how for how long um, have we had this problem of being so susceptible to periodontal disease? Is this something very recent or is this something very ancient? And we have no idea. And so that's why we're trying to now look at this temporal dimension and trying to understand if the, the oral microbiome has changed through time. One of the things we've learned on for the gut microbiome, so these are the microbes that live in your gut, is that they have changed enormously with the advent of industrialization. Um, and that if you look at either archaeological populations or people today that live in traditional societies like hunting and gathering groups, they have a very different gut microbiome than people who live in cities. And we think that there's something about this urban lifestyle, um, probably dietary related, that, that has really changed the gut microbiome and might be making us more susceptible to chronic disease. We're wondering if something as similar is happening in the oral cavity, but we're just beginning that research. So that's one motivation. So there's this overarching kind of goal of understanding how the oral microbes, um, human oral microbes have changed through time and how that affects our health. But then we can also learn really, really interesting uh, answers to questions about the past. So one question um, that I've long been interested in is the origins of dairying. 
So dairy is super weird in some ways. We are the only animals that drink the milk of another animal. Yeah. If you think about it, this is milk that's being made for an infant, and yet we drink the milk made for infant cows. It's pretty weird when you put it in context. It's pretty weird in context. Yeah. We do this, right? And, and then there are even populations in the world who have genetic adaptations to doing this. Most people don't know this, but lactose intolerance is actually the natural ancestral state for humans. The ability to drink milk as an adult is actually a derived trait. It's a new mutation that occurred sometime recently. So the natural state for all mammals is to be able to digest milk as infants and then to lose that ability during, uh, during development, during maturation. And that actually helps with weaning. You don't want a, a baby calf to just nurse for its whole life, right? So mammals have developed this, um, uh, we're sort of programmed to stop digesting milk at a certain time to encourage us to wean. There are five populations in the world, um, Europeans, uh, Saudi Arabians, um, well, Europeans and actually uh, Indians uh, in so the subcontinent share the same mutation. Um, and then three different populations in East Africa have developed mut genetic mutations that allow us to produce lactase, which is the enzyme that adjusts milk, for our whole lives. What's really cool about this is that that basically means that we maintain this sort of infant state of digestion for our whole lives. Um, so it's this, is, it's this kind of interesting adaptation in milk drinking. And that begs the question, when did we first start drinking milk? How old is dairying? But that's so hard to study because milk does not preserve in the archaeological record. We started finding milk proteins, however, in dental calculus. And so now that allows us to go back and test different skeletons to ask the question of whether or not they were drinking milk. And that's a project we're doing right now, and we published one paper on that already. So that's kind of a fun observation. We find lots of things in dental calculus besides bacteria. Um, like I said, milk proteins. We also find other food proteins. Um, sometimes we find um, even little bits of pollen. Um, we find things like bits of textile that someone might have been um, gotten in their mouth because maybe they were making or mending clothing. Um, so we learn all sorts of life history information by studying calculus that can help us uh, answer specific historical questions in addition to these broad evolutionary questions. That's really cool. Where do you get these teeth? So we partner with a number of museums and archaeologists who then provide the samples for our studies. So in some cases, there might be a particular archaeological population we're very interested in um, because of its time or location or some major technological change that's happening at that, at that period. And so we'll go out and contact archaeologists working there or museums who have collections, and we'll ask uh, if we can do some sampling. Or sometimes we get approached by the archaeologists themselves who have seen our research and they have an interesting question that they'd like to answer. And then we'll team up and, and try to answer that question. Where did you go to college? I went to the University of Kansas. Uh, that's interesting. Where are you from? <laughs> I'm from I'm from a suburb of Kansas City called Overland Park. So this was a familiar option for you. Yeah. So it was. Um, you know, I was really fortunate um, that I was able to get a full scholarship to the University of Kansas, and that is um, that allowed me to go and get a great education. And then after that, I took a year off to kind of figure out what I wanted to do. A gap year. Um, I took a gap year. Just after like Malia Obama. I know. Well, I took it after undergrad instead of oh, before. Oh, okay. But, okay. Right. But for me, um, you know, I I really loved college and I had a lot of interests. Um, I loved my science classes. I, I, I really enjoyed microbiology, molecular biology, and chemistry. But I also loved my anthropology classes. I loved archaeology, osteology, biological anthropology. So I was really torn because at the time I didn't know how I could combine these interests. And so I was trying to decide between them. And at a certain point, I realized that actually I could combine them um, and do some really interesting work in the field of archaeological science, which is which is broadly where I'm situated now. So applying scientific methods to study archaeological questions and also evolutionary questions. And so I uh, then got my master's degree at Harvard University in anthropology. And then I followed that up with a PhD also at Harvard, um, focusing on applying these scientific techniques to archaeological questions. And then after that, I got a, um, I was hired for a postdoctoral position um, at the University of Zurich Medical School, where they had just started a new center for the study of evolutionary medicine. So the focus there, they were really interested in using ancient DNA techniques to try to understand the origins of disease. And so that's where I started a lot of the work that I do now was during that postdoc. I was there for two years. And then after that, I came to the University of Oklahoma and I've been here ever since working on these questions. That's really cool. So d did you have research experience as an undergraduate? 
I did um, on kind of different topics. I mean, so the experiences that I had were largely just getting me to understand how a lab works. So yeah. I worked in two labs. I worked in a fruit fr- fruit fly research lab, and I was in charge of breeding fruit flies, which I learned um, is very laborious in that that actually experience made me realize that I did not want to work with flies. Um, you flies just, breed you know, very quickly. Throw on a little berry white and... Yeah, yeah, they breed very quickly. And so you have to come in at all hours of the day and night um, in order to uh, separate them and mix all these things. So <laughs> I, I, it was a great experience, but I learned that I was not destined for fly research. Okay. Um, and then after that, I, I had a... Um, I had some research experience working in an organic chemistry lab, which I really enjoyed. And so we were developing new types of polymers. And out of that experience, um, I learned an awful lot about chemistry. Um, but I also realized in that lab that I missed the biology. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, those experiences were fantastic. They got me to understand how labs worked, how the scientific method works. And it also helped me kind of refine where my interests were. So in addition to those two lab experiences, I also spent a summer doing excavation on an archeological project in Belize at a field school. Oh, wow. And that was fantastic. And so those three different lab experiences helped me, or two lab and one field experience, helped me kind of sort out where I wanted to go for my graduate studies or what direction I wanted to go in. What kinds of things about you came alive or were were sort of latent and always there that were tapped into by engaging in in research and what things in what ways do you think you changed as a result of of engaging in this what did you learn from doing research that's applicable in ways beyond you know the actual particular things that you're researching what sorts of skills did you develop that you think were helpful in other arenas so i think when you're when you're in school the most of the focus is on learning material and being able to repeat it. And um, so kind of taking in a lot of information and summarizing it. But what's, what's, what I like about research, and I think I didn't really understand this until I was doing research, is that research is extremely creative because you're problem solving. You're solving problems for which no one knows the answer. Mm-hmm. So instead of in school where it's like, well, someone knows the answer and I just have to get the right answer. Research is when you kind of leave that and now you're in a territory where nobody knows the right answer and it's up to you to solve it. And getting to that point, coming up, being creative, thinking about how would I solve this problem? What tools could I use? What approach would I do? How would I test that? That's an incredibly fun Um, and rewarding experience, especially when you discover something completely new that nobody knew before. So all of your schoolwork is getting you to the point where you know enough information to kind of go out there on your own and do your own exploration. And that to me is super fun and interesting. When did that happen for you? Did you have a, did you have a, a, a moment where you were like, oh my God, I just discovered something? Yeah, of course. That happens all the time. Um, do you remember the uh, first time? Well, I mean, one of the most exciting, one of the most memorable was, um, so when I first began my research on dental calculus, uh, no, it had been very little study before. There had been people who had looked at it under a microscope and they had observed that there were cells, they could see bacterial cells and they could see pollen and things like that. But it was widely believed that there was no DNA, no genetic material at all in calculus. In fact, there was a publication that said there is no DNA in dental calculus. Um, but when they cited that information, it was actually from a publication in the 1960s. So I'm not sure how well they could even measure DNA in the 1960s. That was a long time ago. And our methods are much more sensitive now. But I asked a lot of people, this was back in 2010, if they'd ever tested dental calculus for, for DNA. And the results, you know, what people said was, oh, we tried, it didn't really work. I don't think it's worth pursuing. It's not very interesting. But I wanted to try. So I tried. And what I realized pretty quickly was that Rather than there being no DNA in the sample, there was so much DNA that it was actually interfering with the measurement. So once we solved that problem and discovered that there was an enormous amount of DNA, first of all, that was exciting. So that we discovered that actually dental calculus has more DNA than anything else known in the archaeological record. Mm-hmm. That was a cool discovery. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. When I first saw the when we first got the reading, we we kind of fix the problem so we could actually accurately measure the DNA and we saw how much was really there. It just blew my socks off. It was amazing. And then when we then um, got our first DNA sequences back, I was really worried that it would just look like soil bacteria because these people had been buried in soil for a thousand years. And I thought, well, maybe all we'll get is soil. 
But when it came back and the species we identified were like 95% oral bacteria, that was amazing. And, and then when we took, we took that research a little bit further and then we were able to reconstruct the full genome of a pathogen more than a thousand years old. And this is also really interesting. So one of the pathogens we found, its name is Tanarella forsythia. It causes periodontal disease. It's one of the major um, pathogens involved in periodontal disease. It's named after a woman named Dr. Ann Tanner, who's a microbiologist at the Forsyth Institute. So Tanarella forsythia, that's why it's named that. And shortly after we published that, um, I got an invitation from the Foresight Institute to come and present my results, and I got to meet Dr. Tanner. So I got to introduce her to the ancient genome we'd reconstructed from a bacteria named after her, but that was more than a thousand years old. So there's all these moments where you make a discovery, and it's just so exciting. And even with the milk proteins, when we were looking at proteins in calculus, we were not expecting to find milk. In fact, when I got the first results back and it was full of milk, I thought it must be a mistake and I repeated the entire experiment a second time. And when we got the same results the first time, then I started believing that it was real. Then we went from, I think we started on six samples, we expanded to 100 samples and we kept repeating the results. That was an amazing discovery. We had no idea that milk preserves in dental calculus and we discovered that it does. So there's all these moments of discovery which are, which are truly incredible. And sometimes they really answer archaeological questions that there's no other way of answering. Mm -hmm. And that's that's pretty darn exciting. Do you um, have do you uh, in, in, in what ways do you intersect with undergraduate students? So when I was at the University of Zurich on my postdoc, um, one of the questions we were trying to look at was um, I mentioned before that some people have the genetic ability to digest milk as adults and some people do not. So the ability to digest milk as adults is a genetic trait called lactase persistence. And one question we had was, today in Central Europe, about 70% of people have lactase persistence, so can digest milk. And we had a sample from the medieval period, it's about 1,000 years old. We wanted to know if the same percentage of people could digest milk then or if fewer people could digest milk. And so I worked with an undergrad, a really talented undergrad, and I put her on that project, and she did all the lab work, uh, genetically typing, um, uh, I think it was something like 20 or 30 different skeletons in our collection for this trait. And she actually published a paper as an undergrad in a, in a peer-reviewed scientific journal on the results. And what we found was actually during the medieval period, the same frequency of people could digest milk. So that means that... Um, uh, P Europeans have been able to digest milk um, uh, very efficiently for at least a thousand years. Mm -hmm. So that was a really fun project that I did with an undergrad. She was very talented and worked very hard. Um, since then, I have been mainly working with master's students and PhD students, but I am open to working with undergrads if you have someone um, who's interested. But I will say if there are undergrads interested out there, to do it early. One problem I have is a lot of people want to come to me and work with me in their last year or even their last semester. It's just not enough time. So if you're an undergrad and you're interested in doing research, start in your sophomore year. And that's when um, it's going to be uh, much more feasible to put you on a project if you start early. As an undergraduate student, do you have to be necessarily bringing any lab skills to the table or will you kind of meet them where they are in terms of their capability? You know, if they come in already having lab skills, that allows me to move more quickly with them, but I don't that they have lab skills. In fact, it's quite unusual for an undergrad to have previous lab experience. But I would say if you don't have lab experience, the earlier you get in that lab, the better. And is it as easy as just coming up to you and saying, hey, I am really, really interested in 10,000 year old dentistry um, and I want to help? Yeah. And so probably what would happen if a student approached me and they were like, let's say a sophomore or a first semester junior, and they really wanted to work on this, what I would do is kind of bring them into my lab introduce them to my graduate students, maybe get a uh, partner them up with one of the graduate students, have them shadow for a while, see the see how things work, um, maybe give them a very small part of a project, see if they can replicate the results we can, and if they can show that they can do the work and they, they have um, good technique, um, then we'll see if we can uh, develop a uh, senior honors uh, thesis project around it. So I work for the University of Rochester, and we really try to promote undergraduate student research. You know, we have a pretty high incidence of undergrads doing that. And um, comment on the the degree to which doing research as an undergraduate can enhance your educational experience beyond what you are 
sort of required to do in the classroom? Well, I think I think that doing research has two primary benefits. Uh, on a very practical level, if you apply to graduate school, it looks really good, right? Because it shows that you have commitment and interest and, and you you have a go-getter mentality. But I think on a, on, on a deeper level, you will learn so much from research. You can only learn so much in a classroom and, and learning in a classroom doesn't really prepare you for that career at all because research is very different than just learning about something. So, the, so acquiring knowledge that someone else has already summarized for you is very different than going out and having to get that knowledge yourself. And so having that research experience kind of shows you what a career in that field will be like and if you're good at it and if you enjoy it. Um, it's also very exciting. And I think it also teaches you a lot of skills like you have to be able to communicate clearly. You have to be able to communicate to your coworkers, to your colleagues. You have to explain why you're doing what you're doing. You have to be able to troubleshoot if something goes wrong. You have to be able to figure out what went wrong. Um, you have to develop your leadership skills. Um, there's many, many positive things that come out of um, doing your own research that you really can't get in any other way. And as we learned from your own story earlier, you know, you don't have to necessarily be totally in love with the first thing that you're setting out, no, setting about researching. The first thing you're going to do is going to be boring. <laughs> <laughs> no one's going to give you a 10,000-year-old tooth as an undergrad if you have never been in the lab before, right? Because very likely the first few times you do something, you're going to make a lot of mistakes. Um, and so what they're going to, you know, the first thing someone's going to give you is something that's pretty safe, that even if you completely mess up, it's not going to like uh, compromise the whole lab, right? So, so the first few things you're probably going to be doing is repeating something that's already been done before, or showing that you can yield consistent, you can pipette consistently, or you know, usually most labs will, will kind of build you up, and then we'll assess how, how what progress you're making, and then at a certain point, if you've demonstrated that you've done a really good job, you're committed, you're hardworking, you're thoughtful. Um, uh, we'll start to give you more and more um, uh, kind of uh, high responsibility projects. So we'll, we'll build up. We we don't usually turn over the Neanderthal teeth on day one. Yeah, right. And then um, you know the one of the things that I've that I have heard that has that has sort of made the uh, the higher ed news a little bit, and that is that um, we're really doing a great job of cranking out PhDs. Uh, mm -hmm. and in particular in, in STEM fields like yours. Uh, and that's good, but the problem is that there doesn't appear to be very many places for them to go uh, in terms of getting jobs in academia. You know, how, how, do you, how do you advise somebody, you know, at this stage of their, this undergraduate or, or perhaps even, you know, master's or beginning graduate, how do you advise them if this is a, something that they're considering doing, but that they're looking ahead and they're saying, wow, it looks like a really crowded field at the top. I don't know if this is going to be worth my time. Yeah, I think there's a couple of issues there. As I mentioned before, I had multiple research experiences before I went to graduate school and I even took a year off to decide if I really wanted to do it. Um, I think you know, in each of those research experiences I had, I didn't necessarily go on and fly research or organic chemistry, but each one kind of helped me understand aspects of research so that when I was ready to do it, I, I, I was more prepared. What I would say is in terms, it's true, we probably are graduating too many people with PhDs and there are not enough jobs, but there, there are ways to make yourself more successful within that pool. I think one thing that a student needs to evaluate is why are you going to graduate school? For some people, going to graduate school is the last stop on the train of indecision. They don't know what they're doing, and they don't—they just have no idea. And they figure, well, I'll go to grad school. <laughs> right? I was—I was raising my hand. Yeah. So that's not. <laughs> so if, you're, if that's your motivation for going to graduate school, um, you put yourself at a disadvantage because you just sort of you're just sort of kicking the can down the road. Now that being said, that doesn't mean you can't be successful, but it, it does make it a little bit more challenging. I think. It's easier to be successful if you go for a, re a very clear reason. Like you really want to be in this field. You want to make a difference. You have a particular field of research you are fascinated by. That's going to be more motivational for you. Um, and you'll be more satisfied with the education you, you get and you'll, you'll just do a better job of it. Um, when you're, once you're in your graduate program, some graduate programs have more supervision or less supervision. Some of them are more structured, some of them are less structured. 
you need to kind of dig deep on your own psychology and figure out what works for you. Do you work better in a program that's highly structured where people are telling you what to do? Or do you work better in a program where you're given a lot of flexibility and freedom? If you're someone who needs a lot of structure and you go into a program that has total freedom, you might kind of waste a lot of time not getting anywhere and then trying to rush at the last minute. So part of this is going to be self-reflection and, and giving yourself an honest reflection of yourself, even if that sometimes means that it's a little less than flattering, but it helps you kind of reflect on your own psychology and what's going to work for you. Once you've established that, that'll help you be more successful in graduate school because you'll be able to see where your weaknesses are and address them sooner rather than later. Um, the other thing is, is that if you, to be successful coming out of graduate school, you need to have publications. I've seen a lot of students who they produce a dissertation and they don't think at all about the job market until their very last year. And then they come out and they realize they don't have any publications. That makes them look really weak because everybody out there competing against people who already have publications. So I would say in order to be competitive on the job market, you wanna have at least two first author publications by the time you graduate. And in order to do that, the publication cycle these days, it takes between six months and a year just from when you submit a completed manuscript. So. You, that means that you need to be submitting in you know two, three years before you project to graduate in order to have two finished published papers by the time you do graduate. So these are things that I think um, on a very practical level students need to think about to make themselves more successful. But if you are someone who is, you have, you, you're excited about research, you have a field you're passionate about, and you get in there and you start doing research early and publishing early, when you come out, you're gonna be very strong on that job market. That's great advice. And um, as I shared with you, um, uh, another resource that demonstrates that while we are doing a good job in general in terms of awarding more PhDs across all disciplines, and particularly in STEM fields, that, that women are still running a bit behind men in terms of achieving that goal kind of knowing what you know now what guidance do you have for young women who are striving to close that gap uh yeah. when it comes to awarding phds in the stem fields yeah if, you know, yeah the problem it's a big problem i mean if you look at the number of phd students they're overwhelmingly biased towards women there are more women getting phds than men and yet when you look at who gets the jobs it's overwhelmingly men who get the jobs not women and that gets worse and worse as you go further so at the assistant professor level it's not so bad it gets worse at associate level and it gets really bad at full tenured professor where it's mostly men in that category i think there's a lot of reasons that contribute to this um, I think one of the big challenges that we face as women is if you want to have a family, you are on a biological clock and you really need to have a child by the time you're 35, which is right at this critical time when tenure matters, when you're applying for jobs, when you're trying to advance your career, and that can be really difficult. What I would say is, you know, um, uh, I think things are changing and getting better. I've had fantastic interactions with my chair, with my dean about my, you know, taking maternity leave and things like that. But this is a, this is a, challenge that I'm not going to uh, uh, sugarcoat. I think one thing that would help in that is to make it so it's not maternity leave, but parental leave. I think if men and women took time off um, with the birth of a child, that would actually help everyone in this situation. Um, I think another thing that is important is that even if you have, if you have you had a person, one person, you can make a male variant and a female variant, even if they said the exact same thing, the person hearing them will interpret what they say differently based on if they're male or female. Um, so there's this sort of gendered behavior, um, which, is, which is really interesting and very frustrating. It's very hard for women, I think, to appear. So a man who's assertive is called assertive. A woman who's assertive is called bossy. Right. Mm-hmm. So, um, yes, my wife has told me that I am to uh, completely cease uh, all use of uh, and reference to that term um, <laughs> when uh, when describing my three year old daughter in particular. Yes. Yeah. Well, it, you know, and it, it, it is very interesting. So and it a woman makes perfect sense. Sad. And I never thought about it. And I'm thankful that it was brought up. Yeah. And, and so it, it does make it very hard as a woman, because the things that you would do to be successful as a man if you do them as a woman, it, it brings some people will interpret that with negative connotations. So it's a trap. How do you how do you be a leader and assertive and aggressive out there, getting your science done, pushing, 
without falling into a gender trap of people associating those things in women with negative qualities. How do you do that? It's a real challenge. <laughs> it's an ongoing <laughs> process, right? Um, and and sometimes too, if a man is enthusiastic, that comes across as enthusiasm. Whereas a woman comes does the exact same behavior, she'll be considered flaky. So it, it is a trap and it is very, very difficult, I think, for women to navigate that. And I do not have a magic solution. Yeah. Um, I do the best that I can. I think knowing that those problems exist help to overcome them. Mm-hmm. I think being aware of them is very, very important. Um, I think try. I think for women, it's important for you to find mentors. Seek out mentors. Seek out other women who have been successful and establish relationships with them, um, mentoring, advising relationships. Even if it's something like, hey, could I get a cup of coffee with you? You're a senior member, you're a senior professor in my field. Could I ask you some questions about how you handled this? Um, I think those are those are things that can be very, very helpful. Um, and uh, I, I will say mentorship, I've been very fortunate to have very, very good mentors. And that has made a huge difference for me. I would also say one of the ways that you can um, be more successful um, sort of post PhD is through networking. Going to conferences is very important. Meeting people is very important. Um, Uh, No one, man or woman, should be a wallflower standing in the corner afraid to say hello to someone at a reception. So what I would encourage anyone who's a PhD student currently or will be one in the future or just graduated is when you go to a conference and you're at a reception, just start going up to people and shaking hands, introduce yourself, um, jump right in there. Um, networking makes all the difference. One thing I have seen on the job market and um, I've seen over and over again, both with friends, myself, also being on committees, is knowing someone, you're like, oh yeah, this applicant, I met them at a conference. She came up and she shook my hand and she, she was really impressive. Suddenly shoot your application to the top of the pile. You'd be amazed how big of a difference something as simple as that makes. And I know that it's noon and I don't want to take too much more of your time, but... I would be sort of remiss to not have you comment on the paleo diet situation because <laughs> I need to confess to you that for a, for a time there, you know, I was all into CrossFit, okay? And if you are mm-hmm. into CrossFit, like all the way in, then you got to be into the paleo diet, okay? And I was <laughs> I was not really because mm-hmm. I love cheese and bread. And uh, for some reason, tomatoes are, are out. You can't do that. You know, it's just it's bizarre. <clears throat> now, I really like bacon. So that part of it was OK. Right. Where it's like, oh, just just eat all just constant bacon. Well, so, so but the yes. thing is that you yeah. have, you know, th- this is your your TED talk on this. This has got to be like the most, you know, prolific thing that you've ever done. It's got one point two million views on it. Yeah, it's it's amazed me. I, I didn't think anyone would watch it. <laughs> I, I was just saying really. Surprise. Obvious. Um, yeah, so, and I, I realized that, so what, what we know in archaeology, that message has not gotten out to the general public. And so, um, yeah, you know, the paleo diet is a really interesting thing. It's a, so it's would a you, so let's re- that, yeah, recap what it is and everything first. Yeah. So, well, so it, it actually originated, the very origins of it come from something, a book in this published in the 1970s called the Stone Age Diet. And then it got rehashed a few times. And the person who really popularized it was Loren Cordain, who's an exercise physiologist in Colorado. And he published, he kind of renamed it the paleo diet and he published a couple uh, books on it. And he has some, um, some academic publications as well. Um, the problem as I see it is that it's based on kind of some confusion about it. A lot of things are being confused. So the original formulation of the paleo diet was actually not based on anything archeological at all. It was based on something called the ethnographic atlas, which was this compilation of ethnographies that were put together in the 1960s of societies around the world who had been categorized by the types of foods that they ate. And then Loren Cordain had run some statistics on this this compilation of ethnographies and made some uh, observations. One of the things he found was that in this this ethnographic atlas, the populations that ate, who were hunter-gatherers, predominantly ate meat. But here's the rub. In, by the time this thing was written, most of these accounts are from the 19th century or even the 20th century. Very few hunter-gatherer societies remain on Earth today. 
And the ones that do tend to live in marginal environments where other people don't want to live. So if you look at the data he was analyzing, there were only, I think, fewer than four populations in Africa. That's where humans evolved. Everyone there used to be hunter-gatherer, and now they only live in the desert because that's where the agriculturalists don't want to live. They've been pushed there. And, but most of the populations in this study actually are from North America, from the Arctic, and from the American deserts. Again, places where agriculturalists couldn't live and so pushed all the remaining hunter-gatherers. So then when you look at it, it looks like hunter-gatherer diets are very rich in meat. But actually, it's because the only hunter-gatherers that were surveyed were hunter-gatherers that live in the Arctic and live in deserts, where there's not very much plant right. material. <laughs> so that's a problem. If we actually look in the archaeological record at hunter-gatherers before the invention of agriculture, they lived everywhere. They lived in everywhere that today people are agriculturalists. And the people who lived in these very plant-rich environments ate a lot of plants. And people who lived in the far north where there are no plants, of course, ate lots of animals. And so people were exploiting the local resources where they, where they were. And so actually, Paleolithic diets are enormously diverse. If you go on the archaeological record, they are very diverse and they, and they vary by the local ecology. So we can't really say that there's any one diet that ancient people ate. When we say the Paleolithic too, that's an enormous period of time. So that's tens of thousands of years. And diet changed a lot over tens of thousands of years. And we say it changes it with the wind in th today. Yes. So, I mean, if we're looking over tens of thousands of years, you know, what, when in the Paleolithic are we interested and where? Because the where, what people were eating around the equator is going to be very different than what people are eating near the poles, right? Just because the ecology is, the, the ecosystems are very different. But what about this um, idea that, you know, grain is bad? You know, that we're not, that, that, that we didn't have this, you know, when we were becoming humans and now we have it and it is the source of all of this inflammation that's causing chronic disease. So, so one thing that was noticed early on by archaeologists is that many populations experience a decline in health with the advent of agriculture. But I should say it's not universal. Some populations actually experience an improvement in health with the advent of agriculture. Two things are happening when agriculture begins. One is um, suddenly what you do in most cultures, you have this increasing amount of grain, but birth rates also go up tremendously. And um, disease goes up because people start living in greater numbers. So part of this decline in health is probably related to the greater disease burden because people are living in larger groups and so diseases are able to spread more easily. So there's a lot of confounding factors there happening all at once. We also have the origins of social inequality at that time. So some people are getting much better food than others. So all those things are happening. So it's not just the fact that they're eating grain. It's also this increased disease transmission and also this increased social inequality that's declining in health, that's causing declines in health. Um, in terms of grain, though, if we look at grains themselves, so it's true that it's not until agriculture, when we could really produce them on a massive scale, that people turn to grains as a primary source of diet. But people have been eating grains for a long time. We even have Neanderthals who have starch granules from relatives of barley in their teeth. So people, humans and even archaics, were eating grain long before they domesticated it, especially in um, the Near East. So we have, and in parts of Europe, we have grinding stones that were used to grind grain, uh, you know, five, 10,000 years before agriculture. So it was a more minor component of the diet, but it was still being used. It wasn't like it was completely ignored. Now, that being said, what were people eating before they could produce grain on a massive scale? Well. The paleo diet makes people sort of think that it was all meat, and that's not true. It's true for some populations, especially populations in Europe that lived basically very close to glaciers in this very cold environment. It was an ice age after all, and they were following herds of animals. They did primarily focus on meat. But if you go into Africa, which is where humans evolved, there was not, there does not appear to be this emphasis on meat. What people appear to be focusing on is tubers, root crops, underground starchy, uh, carbohydrate-rich um, plants. Also totally, totally not okay, uh, paleo diet. <laughs> yeah, well, that's what, the, it, the, there, it does seem that if, from what we know of the earliest human diets, they were probably very focused on roots, tubers, and supplemented with, with game, um, and also wild-collected 
uh, various types of plants. Nuts were probably very, very important. Honey was probably extremely important. And insects, termites and ants are a major part of many hunter-gatherer diets. So the paleo diet is sort of like, if you take the idea that you should eat a lot of meat and then you apply it to the meat we have in our diets today, you end up with bacon. There was no bacon in the Paleolithic record. Okay, first of all, they did not have those fat little pigs, right? They had wild boars. Um, they had they had a lot of lean animals. They did not have these fatty cattle and fatty uh, pigs. And then they couldn't fry it. There were no frying pans in the archaeological record. So, or uh, not 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 that time. So. Um, the diet's gonna be really different. And also, you know, one thing we know is that when they would eat an animal, it's not like they're just eating these big thick cuts of muscle and fat. Um, organs were very prized because organs contain a lot of uh, vitamins and minerals, especially the liver. Um, and also um, people are clearly targeting bone marrow. That is something that we see they would um, break the long bones in a very characteristic way using stone tools, which we can recognize in the in the faunal remains, in the animal remains, um, to harvest bone marrow. That was a very important food source. So um, I think it's important to kind of look at a, the fuller picture of this and not, not make these sort of simple analogies but to actually look more about, um, have a more comprehensive understanding of people in the past. And they're eating a lot of plants, they're eating animals, they're eating insects, they're eating honey, they're eating a lot of things. And I think one thing also that's important to mention is that it really isn't possible to eat like a Paleolithic person in today's societies. Um, every single food that you see in the grocery store has been modified by domestication has radically changed the biology of that plant or animal with the exception of a few fish. I think there's a few fish in there you can probably find that are truly wild and haven't been strongly modified. But other than that, I challenge someone to find something in the grocery store that is not the product of agriculture. It's very, very hard to do. Um, so all of our fruits are bigger and juicier and sweeter than anything you would find pre-domestication. Um, our, our, our tubers are have a higher ratio of starch to fiber than anything in the archaeological record or anything that a Paleolithic person would have eaten. So um, you look at populations today that are hunter-gatherers in Africa who still do focus on tuber resource exploitation. So for example, the Hadza of Tanzania um, is a hunter-gatherer group, a very famous hunter-gatherer group. They primarily eat tubers um, and also honey and some small game. The tubers they eat there, although superficially, will sort of look like yams or sweet potatoes. It's very fibrous. In fact, they can't necessarily even really fully eat the tuber. A lot of what they do is sort of suck out the juices, suck out the starch and spit the rest out because there's so much fibrous material, you can't digest it. That produces something called a quid. And we actually find a lot of quids in the archeological record of people trying to eat plant matter that's just so fibrous, they can't actually chew it and swallow it. So they end up kind of sucking out the resources and spitting out the fibrous parts. Um, so the foods people ate in the past were quite different, especially when you go into the deep past. So what should we eat? Well, that's a great question. One of the things, one of the ways we're kind of trying to get at this is by looking at what impact our foods have on our microbiome and trying to understand, that's kind of helping us because the microbiome is a core part of our biology and trying to understand um, foods that disrupt that less. And one thing that it appears is that there's, there are aspects of our industrialized diets meaning these heavily processed foods, high carbohydrate or high sugar, high fat that do disturb our gut microbiomes. And it does appear that eating foods that are more um, closer to something that was once alive, <laughs> so the less mechanically and chemically refined it is, the better. So if you're going to eat grain, eat whole grain. Um, that still has all of its vitamins and fiber in it. If you're going to eat fruit, don't drink fruit juice. Eat the fruit itself, which contains all the pectins and the fiber and all these things that are really helpful. Because remember, you're not just feeding yourself. You have to feed your microbes. And they like all those things that we tend to strip out in food processing because those things tend to make food spoil more quickly. And, um, and that makes it less cost effective. But actually, those things are all really, really good for us. And probiotics so, are huge these days. <laughs> Probiotics are really big. Um, I, what I would say is that they're uh, quite um, complicated. <laughs> so the only so probiotics fall under the so the the Food and Drug Administration regulates them, and it's they fall under a class called biologics, which is different than drugs. 
and it has a much more difficult approval process. As a result, almost all of the probiotics you're going to find on the market belong to a category called GRAS, which stands for Generally Recognized as Safe, which means they're exempt from FDA oversight because they're on this list of common food additives that have already been determined to be safe prior to 1950 or something like that. And so that's going to be any microbe that's used in dairy or sauerkraut or pickles. So all these kind of traditional wine, beer, any of those microbes that's been used for a very long time in food production typically is what's sold today as probiotics because the only bacteria that are legally able to be sold without really intensive testing by the Food and Drug Administration. Um, now that being said, some of those might be effective, some of those might not. Most of them actually die in your stomach. Remember, your stomach has a pH of two. It's very acidic. It'll kill most microbes. That's actually really good for you. That's why you don't get, that's why if you eat something that's a little bit spoiled, you don't necessarily get terrible food poisoning because your stomach acid kills most of the microbes that you eat. Um, so it's a little bit unclear how many of those probiotics are actually making it past your stomach to then do beneficial things for you and your gut. Um, also right now, companies do not have to prove that the probiotics they sell are alive. So you could be buying little capsules of dead bacteria. What I would say Yummy. is, yeah. So what I would say is, you know, if you if you want probiotics and you want to make a smart choice, um, there are certain types of dairy microbes that have been shown to have beneficial effects. You want to buy them in dairy because dairy is their food, which means they're probably alive. <laughs> if you buy them in capsule form, I think it's a little bit of a mixed bag. I have no idea if they're alive. You just put them in a capsule with no food to eat. We'll see how long they live and if they make it through your stomach. So um, you probably have a better shot of getting live bacteria if you if you eat them in a in a form where it includes their food. Um, but uh, probiotics are kind of a messy topic. I think there's a lot of potential there, but right now we're in a bit of a wild west situation. Finally, you know, the work that you do is, um, you know, we already talked about feces. Okay. Uh, you work with some of the gnarlier parts of the human body when it comes, <laughs> when it comes to we love bodily fluids in my lab. Yeah. So the, I mean, any good jokes? I mean, do you have Lots. like new, like, yeah. So give me like a really great, you know, um, you know, microbiologically anthropological, you know, euphemism for going to the bathroom. Oh gosh. Um, oh, I don't know. You put me on the spot. I'm going to have a hard time thinking of them. All right. If you want to um, email it to me, you can think about it. But Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, we, I will say that sometimes when our lab group goes out to lunch or something, the tables around us will all turn and stare because we just talk about whatever, you know, there's, <laughs> you know, we have no problem talking about poop or spit or anything. It's like, it's all fair game. That's what we work on. So, so in more ways than one, you've got to have a good stomach for this. Yes. All right. Good. Well, um, I'll let you go about your day today. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. I, I, I really appreciate it. Yeah, no problem. And good luck with everything. So, in addition to whatever the FDA recently had to say about flossing not really being a big deal anymore, I'm going to assume that Dr. Warner might also recommend skipping it so that the... Uh, Molecular anthropologists of future centuries and millennia can have some of that good stuff to work with. At that point in time, I think the Velveeta in our teeth may actually still be edible. Only time will tell. Uh, thanks for listening. Please subscribe again on iTunes. Rate this show if you haven't. Follow me on Twitter at CrushPod. There's more to see at www.crushpodcast.com. Next time, I will uh, report out on having been at the National Conference for the National Association of College Admissions Counseling, or NACAC. Always a pretty fascinating scene, and I got an interview done while I was there, so keep an eye out for that once I can uh, slow down a little bit here to uh, uh, on the road to make that happen. So um, that'll do it, folks. Thanks again for listening, and I will see you next time. Talk to you later.